Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. In today's episode, we hear from English poet Holly McNish, who talked to me about her new book, Slug and Other Things. She also recited two of the poems, and here is a little taster. This is your fault, Granny, that I'm like this. I cannot leave the tiny shampoo bottle in the hotel shower, which I do not need to take. I do not need to take it. It will just sit in my bathroom cupboard unused for years, but I cannot leave it. Or the shower gel, or the body lotion. I don't even use body lotion. I've never used body lotion. This is your fault, Grandma. We'll hear more from the brilliant Holly McNish in a moment. But today, it's a big day today. It's the beginning of the phased reopening, a week of hugs and haircuts and whatever you're having yourself. So I hope you enjoy doing some of the things you haven't been able to do for the past several months. I managed to bag a hair appointment on Friday, so that's going to be the highlight of the week. Lots of highlights will be happening and maybe some layers and definitely a nice curly blow dry. But thanks to every single one of you who joined us for the recording of our 500th episode. It was a really special occasion and we'll be bringing you an edited version on Thursday's episode, which is our 500th. So I hope you enjoy that. Now, Holly McNish writes about so much of what it means to be a woman in her latest book, Slug and Other Things I've Been Told to Hate. She writes about death and grief, growing up in periods, parenting, her relationship with her body, masturbation and lots more. The book is a mixture of poetry, prose, short stories and essays. It's not your usual poetry book and it's all the better for that. She spoke to me about her life and career, women's bodies and her amazing grandmothers. Also about her posh Cambridge education and growing up in the same village as Kate Middleton. Holly also performs two brilliant poems from Slug, which is published in Ireland this week. Here she is, Holly McNish. Holly, thank you so much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Tell me about the title of your book, because it's intriguing. Uh, Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's very lovely to be here. You're very welcome. Yeah, so the title is Slug (laughs) and Other Things I've Been Told to Hate. And um, basically, the reason it's called Slug is because that is one of the things that I've been told to hate the most in my life. Just these little creatures minding their own business, eating people's lettuces, you know. Um, And the whole book's about things that I've been well sort of self-explanatory in that way things I've been told to hate or things I've been told to um not to talk about or to be embarrassed about or ashamed of so it's all different things (laughs) probably that my like family would rather I didn't write about so I've just chosen specifically to (laughs) to write about all of those um and yeah I was trying I was trying to pick a word that kind of summed it up for me and slug really really sums it up for me after I don't this obviously sounds a bit odd but I saw a film of two slugs having sex (laughs) so and the the way they had sex was so amazing and so beautiful like it's amazing (laughs) not that I was watching for ages but I thought oh these I've been told in my life these little creatures (laughs) sorry is this it was a nature. It was a short film at, a, at an Edinburgh gig called Noiriki, and they do like they have poets and musicians, and then short films as well. And there was a film of these slugs having sex, but they were like wrap their bodies around each other and like hang from their own spit off trees and stuff. Like it's really acrobatic and amazing. But I thought, God, all I've known about these creatures is that they're like gross like so gross and then I thought actually a lot of the stuff that's gross about slugs it's like the wetness and the muscle and the moisture quite like a tongue and then yeah so lots of things like that I like the word I think slug I like slugging back a drink sounds a bit like snog which is another word (laughs) that um I really like so yeah it sort of summed up for me the idea of things that we're meant to find disgusting or taboo but which are maybe actually quite beautiful unless you do have a lettuce garden, in which case you probably still hate slugs. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I was just on Twitter earlier and I saw um, 
something that I thought couldn't be real. One of those things you think is a joke, but there's three German men who have come up with a startup business called Pinky Glove. Have you heard of it, Holly? Pinky Glove is a glove that they've come up with a solution to a problem that they thought existed for women in that women don't like to touch their period blood. So this Pinky Glove is a a glove that women can wear when they have to remove a tampon and do things. And it's a real thing and they are getting torn apart on social media for it so it's just it just when he spoke about the slug and the moistness and the wet and things that people find disgusting isn't it incredible that these three german blokes thought that they would do this that's amazing do you know that's pretty similar to i was another title for the book was maybe gonna be like (laughs) i don't think it's as good but like toilet dolly because that was another thing at my did your I don't know if my grandma had like a little dolly with a long woolen skirt that she put over the toilet roll because that was shameful in her day to show that. So all that sort of stuff. That's amazing that someone's designing that like now. I would ex- expect it on if you read the little description of the company, it's like, no, women no longer have to get their hands <laughs> and infected by the bacteria on blood. And it is just the most bizarre and not bizarre you know That's thing and the three amazing. men there with their pinky gloves thinking they've sorting us out helping us That's this terrible amazing. thing amazing and they've got a blindfold as well for when we take it out and then we have to look at the blood so we can't see it well, either pinky blindfold <laughs> pinky everything like but anyway i think their, their business is well and truly uh has been you know finished before it began because everyone on the whole of the internet is just going you morons that's amazing brilliant also pinky i thought of a penis because it's in in england (laughs) quite often the penis but in scotland i know it's the little finger my mum had quite a lot of problems with that when she moved from scotland to england (laughs) as a nurse she used to write down pinky and then the other nurse thought it was about penis i wasn't sure where we were going with the pinky glove Well, that's maybe maybe that's what they were thinking of. But look, you know, I think it's a very good way to start this conversation because you do uh, write about everything, you know, periods, masturbation. You know, you don't leave any stone unturned when it comes to kind of a woman's body, a woman's existence. And that's kind of where you're coming from with the title as well. Yeah. Do, do you ever feel inhibited at all or is, is your whole work about just letting everything out? No, I do feel inhibited. Um, Definitely. So I like didn't set out at all to write this book. So it's a book which comes from all the poems that I've already written. So it's like a way of putting the poems into a book. So these poems were done, like I didn't write them for the book. And there's another book coming out after because there was like twice as many poems as, as this book. So it's sort of, there's another one as well about things that I've learned to love about more positive things like friendship and um, oral sex is in that one. But um yeah, so I just I just realised that there were a lot of things. We will be talking about blood jobs <laughs> later, don't worry. <laughs> I just realised there was there were loads of, of poems that I'd written that I was actually a bit scared to share, exactly for that reason. Like, I'm definitely not from a background where we're very open, like not totally not open about it. And I, I feel like that's that's like a privileged position that I've got, that I can publish poems like this I guess poems about periods or about masturbation and don't get me wrong it, it'll embarrass people around me and my family but not so much in a way that another writer probably couldn't even publish them without kind of getting ejected from their family or something like that so I feel like I'm gonna like you know my dad will like roll his eyes and be like oh lord <laughs> but he would not talk to me for it so um so yeah it was just what I was writing about because it's so it's such a well, a daily thing or a weekly thing, a lot of the stuff I was writing about. The same with grief as well. Like, I know it's not as taboo in that way in terms of things like periods and masturbation, um, but it still is taboo, like the idea of crying or apologising for being sad and all all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it just it just made me more and more annoyed, as I think it does many people, that a lot of things that, for me as a woman or as a person were were really just like normal daily life and and really positive I guess like the masturbation one I find the most shocking of all that that's still so shamed when it's so safe and um it's like nobody that you can harm doing it like definitely doesn't turn you blind as we used to tell people um and just thinking about it just thinking about why I'm so queasy about this stuff because I am queasy about it And even like I wrote this book sitting on my own at a desk. I didn't have to talk to anyone about it. I was reading other people's writing about it. 
and, and you know, reading or talking to strangers or researching. But the minute I now, you know, like this, come on a podcast and chat, it's still like, oof, now I'm going to like have to say the word masturbation <laughs> and the word vulva. So I don't, I don't find it, I find it easier and easier. But the reason that I wanted to do it was because I was sort of questioning like why we find this stuff so hard to talk about. I totally relate to that because I would be, you know, I we do this podcast, we talk about all sorts of things, but I definitely have a, a little, um, yeah, queasy is a good word, kind of, I, I get a bit like, I can feel myself going red sometimes. Like I'm, I still have that uh, hangover yeah. from all the stuff I suppose you're told or the messages you get. You can, you can think you're so right on and all, yeah, <laughs> yeah. got it all out there, but actually... It's a bit embarrassing still in some ways. Yeah, and it's annoying that you have to. Like a, a few people <laughs> that are close to me, like family members, have said, like, do you really have to write about this stuff, Holly? And it's like, well, I don't write about, I don't have to write about it, but this is the stuff I'm writing about because I just write poems when things come into my head. So this is obviously what I'm thinking about a lot at the minute. Um, and it sort of annoys me because I think, well, I, I write about loads of stuff that I don't really share but the, so this stuff, the idea of sharing it. So it's not really do you have to write about it. It's like, do you really have to share these poems that you've written? And I sort of wish we didn't have to share <laughs> poems that I'd written about periods of masturbation. I sort of wish that we lived in a place where it didn't even, I didn't really even think about it to write about it. But until we do, then I, I won't stop sharing them, if that makes sense. And Holly, that's it, isn't it? It's just, you know, the more people like you just put things out there, like in the very everyday way that we experience them, which, as you said, is everyday and normal. Um, and you just you need there just needs to be more stuff out there to make it normal yeah. so that that we don't have to be squeamish and embarrassed anymore because yeah, it will just be <laughs> totally people have been doing it. It's not, you know, the first round. Like I was reading Sharon Old's poetry yesterday when I could go into a bookshop very excitedly and bought. Oh, book. you are lucky to <laughs> You're very jealous. Oh. <laughs> We're still oh, yes, sorry. <laughs> well, I don't know if it would be a good thing in the long run, but I bought a Sharon Olds book and she writes loads about these sorts of things. Um, but I just think, yeah, the more people that do, the less we'll probably have to in the future, maybe. Or maybe we will and there will be lots of beautiful poetry about about things that well there's so much more to talk to you about because you mentioned grief there and it's really beautiful how you speak about it and the, the book is dedicated to your grandmothers and so we're going to talk about that but I want to get an insight really into what makes a poet because I find it really interesting there's so many I, I'm I'm finding poetry very exciting at the moment and it's something that I might have at school struggled with reading various poems and poets that I was supposed to like, that I was supposed to understand, that I didn't really get. And in the last, say, five to ten years, there's so many, particularly a lot of women yeah. coming up, um, writing stuff that I'm actually really engaging with. And, and I can imagine for younger people, it's a it's a gateway into other um, sort of writers as well. But where do you feel like your poetic sensibilities were first sparked? Or when do you remember observing the world in that way first? I think definitely just with funny kids' poems. Like every time I try and think about why, because I've written poems for years, I just love it. I, I really love it. And I never really know what, what makes a poem. I remember Simon Armitage said it's the way that it's laid out on the page. That's what differentiates poetry and prose, basically. Um, so I'm not really sure, but definitely the first time was um, there's a poetry collection called Please Mrs Butler, um, based in a school. And it's it's from like, there's loads of poems from teachers' points of view about these sort of moany kids. And there's one, please, Mrs. Butler, it's like this boy, Derek Drew, who keeps copying my work, miss, what shall I do? And this teacher's just getting more and more annoyed. And I thought it was hilarious. I read that over and over again. And another one called um, Scissors. And it's like, nobody leave the room. Everyone listen to me. And this teacher just blocking the kids in the primary school classroom until they like found all these scissors. <laughs> so it was definitely that. Like I loved funny poetry when I was a kid. Um, so I guess my mum, like, reading me them. And I've still got this little, I had this, I, I loved, like, those mini books you could get. I had, like, a mini library with, like, books about fairies, I think it was, and then this mini collection. And I think it was, like, Roger McGough, Colin West and Alan Alberg, or Janet and Alan Alberg. Um, and I had that by by my bed. And there was one called Pie in the Sky by Roger McGough. And that was the first time I remember, it's like, this guy complaining that there's a bit of um, sky in his pie and taking it back and he wanted like he wanted ketchup not like birds in the pie and not you know <laughs> the sunset and stuff um and that's the first I think that's the first bit of sort of abstract thinking my brain ever did that and when somebody told me that the sun was actually just a star and that all the stars were a sun that blew my mind as well so that and this like Roger McGough poem um 
so yeah definitely at, at that age but yeah sky in the pie I was like wow what an, <laughs> what an idea so I think that's when I started writing growing up did you have uh, a lot of books in the house was it a writerly kind of um background like not like loads but yeah we had we had quite a few yeah we had lots of books in the house like my mum and dad both love reading we didn't have a sort of house with a you know a whole wall of like library but we had like books in my mum and dad's bedroom and stuff um and my mum really likes poetry really likes it I didn't really realize she did until I kind of started publishing it really I've been sort of moaningly reading my poems to her for years and she'd never been like mm, it's all right but can you read Ted Hughes <laughs> but so she definitely knew loads more about poetry than I knew she did and that she ever sort of let on um yeah so yeah I grew up I grew up like being very encouraged to read and I loved I loved stories like Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe was probably my favourite. I didn't really understand any of the religious references, but just, again, I guess the abstract thing when they, I imagine people have all read it that are listening to this, but even then I'm not going to spoil the ending because that's the whole point of the book. But the, but the ending of that, I was just in shock for days. I couldn't believe it. Um, so yeah, yeah, we had we had lots of books. But it wasn't, it wasn't like a literary family in that way. Nobody was yeah. like, my mum's a nurse and my dad worked in computing. Um, but they read a lot and encouraged me to read a lot. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a little village um, called Bucklebury, which is sort of half an outside Redden in the south of England. So, um, yeah. It's not the place where Kate Middleton is from, is <laughs> Do it? Do you know what? None of us knew that, yeah, until we found out. So she's from like... It's a lo- it's a lovely village, but there's like a sort of normal estate area of the village, I guess, and then there's loads of woodland around it. So yeah, she's from I think I have a buckle. There's like Upper Bucklebury, Lower Bucklebury, and Bucklebury. <laughs> so I'm from Upper Bucklebury, and I think she's I don't know how far away it is, but there's lots of like big sort of mansion houses like dotted in the forest. So she's from one of them, but yeah, it is. And the village that I was in when. like my dad's not not into the royal family at all like my mum and dad are both from Glasgow and they moved down about five years before I was born um for my dad's job but when yeah when when the village found out that this Kate um I've now forgotten her second name. Middleton. Middleton. Well, that's ah, disgraceful. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I didn't know that. I love that I'm an Irish person telling an English person what her I'm second just, name. I'm just not a fan of the royal family. And, um, I can tell. And it is disgraceful. disgraceful. My auntie is going to kill me. She will actually kill me if she is. It's real. She doesn't. But yeah, they like renamed the street just at the end of my road. Like, I think it's called Catherine Street now. Um, and then they started selling this. This was the exciting thing in my village when the, the wedding was going on. I wasn't there, but my dad kept phoning me up to say they were selling like royal jelly babies, like only at our village shop. And then the um, the two people that work in the village shop were invited to the wedding. And they were they were like, she's never been in here. We know it's because we're like some of the only people that she's ever interacted with who aren't white and that's why we've been invited to the wedding but we're just going to take it and go so it was just like but yeah the village it was like suddenly everyone you know knew my dad's like oh yeah she's such a nice girl it's like dad you have never seen her or met her like yeah it's like the uproar so it was pretty funny but yeah she does so I think must only be like 20 minutes away I'm sure pretty close isn't it funny that I knew that though when you said Bucklebury that I actually knew yeah that. I'm kind of amazed because her parents had this party um favor business they're really rich I think and they must live in a big mansion somewhere in Bucklebury. yeah but I remember hearing it just thinking it was a lovely um name for a place it's so Bucklebury. nice and it was in it was in Lord of the Rings Bucklebury Shire so my, my dad's like obsessed with Lord of the Rings and my brother's got the same birthday as Frodo, I think, and also grew up in the Bucklebury. So, yeah, that is the, the other claim to fame. Very nice. <laughs> but you left Bucklebury and you went, where did you go to study? I went to Cambridge. Now that's very posh, Holly, isn't it? Going to Cambridge University. It's very posh. But it wasn't, it was very posh and it wasn't very posh. So I went, um, I went from like the local state school, mixed comprehensive school there, and I went to King's College, which... 
is looks very posh and was very intimidating to go to, but it's sort of known as the more equal state school accepting college, which is why I was sort of told to apply there. It was like the only one um, where you don't have to wear gowns to dinner and where like the fellows don't sit separately. So I guess pff, normal, it's not normal, but more normal than some of the other colleges. Yeah, sometimes I sort of skip over the Cambridge thing because I don't feel like, like I studied French and German, I didn't study um, English or or poetry and I feel like it shouldn't be given too much credit for that stuff but actually I'm I'm yeah pretty proud that I got in there and it was I met some amazing people there I found it weird being there and I wouldn't say I enjoyed it that much um but it definitely taught me a lot so yeah (laughs) would you say then like coming from it is I mean I don't know for how much of a huge achievement or I don't want to over egg it but coming from a state school like did did many people in your class have aspirations to end up in the likes of Oxford or Cambridge? Were you were you encouraged by teachers or how did that even happen as a as an aspiration for you? So we were in, encouraged. So I went to a school, it was a pretty I'd say it was a good state school, but then I really liked it. So um yeah, so it was in like a fairly affluent area, I reckon, in a place called Newbury, St. Bartholomew's School. So yeah, but it was still like my name's on a plaque in the school still like and and got you know for the people that got into Oxford so it was like a big deal I think we had one one person well another girl get into Oxford and I got into Cambridge and I think maybe six people applied but yeah so it was made into a massive deal by the school and for my my parents my mum not not less so in a bad way but she's definitely less um she doesn't like pose about stuff like that, but my dad was like on the phone to everyone he'd ever met in his life to tell them sort of thing. <laughs> so it was really nice. And the teachers, it was really it was really nice. Like my German teacher gave me extra classes at lunchtime because he thought I had a chance of possibly getting in. But they they were pretty funny. So it was like a sort of um I was I was told to say the main thing I remember from these classes is we he said that you get interviews there and we don't really have many people going there so we don't really know about it. So he said what are you reading at the moment? That's a question that they often ask. And um and he said right if they ask that say you're reading Ulysses it's a book by a guy called James Joyce and I've never read it still but that was and my teacher said say that because that'll impress them and I was like but I haven't read it. Like, what if they asked me questions about it? It was like, maybe you should read it. It's like, I don't want to read it. Like, I'm so struggling with all my work at the moment. I don't, I didn't want to do extra reading when I was, you know, it's really hard at school, isn't it? You've got loads of subjects. So, yeah, I remember that. So there were lots of things like that that were definitely not the most helpful, but then other things that were definitely very nice. But I, I did get asked that question. And in, 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 did you say you? No, I didn't say you. I said, um, I think it depends on your interviewer as well. I think it's such a, a chance thing getting in. I, I hate it when people are arrogant about getting into certain unis because I think there's such a chance in it. And also loads of people I met there, and this is may, maybe going to be an awful thing to say, but that had gone to some of the like Eton sort of schools were definitely not um, smarter than my friends that were getting like B's and C's at my school. And that really, like it just the idea when somebody says that they've got a degree from so-and-so a university I always want to know like a bit about the background because I just don't think it it means the same from certain certain um places yeah so I'm a bit skeptical about that being like oh this is she must be great because she went here um but yeah I said I was reading Just 17 magazine in the interview yeah and said because I've worked went in your favor I think it probably did I said I worked really really hard but I don't want to read more like more difficult I want to like relax after I'm working my arse off at school basically so I think it probably did and knowing the the person ended up being my tutor so I think it probably they probably had about 20 people said Ulysses the only person in the history of Cambridge University who answered that question by saying (laughs) I would almost put my life on it (laughs) but I think yeah I think it was I think it was probably helpful to be a bit more honest. But my my mum did take me shopping to buy like a Cambridge University outfit for the interview. So that was pretty funny. And when we got there, she was like, what have we done? Honestly, you never, you like, you don't wear polo necks. You don't, what, like, (laughs) this is so ridiculous. (laughs) 
um, and you, you obviously had a, you sounds like you had a great time there, but did you come away with any, um, what observations about class and I suppose about the elitist nature of education in Britain? I mean, we have private schools in Ireland, but I think it's a whole different ball game in England, particularly. And when you look at like who ends up running the country, you know, a lot of the times as in the current yeah. crop, David Cameron, it's that kind of Bullingdon set and it's the people in those colleges. I mean, what were your observations around class from from going there? So I, fa- I found it fascinating and I didn't. So I, I was quite clueless about a lot of stuff when I went there. Like I was I was very good at the subjects I was studying, but my general knowledge was not good like we did a general studies exam for a level and that was like I got four A's and a D and I got a D in general studies and um not that that's a bad grade I'm not saying it was just I knew a lot less about it than I did about like maths is what I mean and I didn't know there was a difference between like private schools and public schools so I I didn't I didn't know that like differential existed at all and one of the things that I noticed when I got there because I went I went to a state primary school and then the last two years I got a scholarship to a local private school which my mum and dad thought great this will be a great thing to put me in and then I went back year seven in secondary school and sixth form back to like the local state comprehensive and um and the one thing that amazed me when I got to Cambridge was that people asked what school you went to as if as if like you'd know so I found it really weird I was thinking this person like I know the five schools from my area because we played netball against them do you know what I mean I know that Parkside <laughs> are likely to dig their nails into what us yeah. I know that like <laughs> so stuff like that so I found that really weird and that didn't really happen at King's because most people I knew went to state schools so that wasn't really known but I played lacrosse and that was opening like eye-opening so I put my school was the only state school I think in the country that played lacrosse because one of the PE teachers used to play and she set it up there so when I was at school it was amazing because we'd always play against these really posh schools the away matches were brilliant we'd have like really nice dinners but so I, I joined the team so I played um for like the Cambridge uh university team at lacrosse and that was I ended up quitting after like a year and a half because I just couldn't handle the differences in that way and they were like, oh, you know, what school did you go to? I was like, uh, St. Bart's. I was like, oh, I haven't heard of that one. Like, there are so many schools in the country. I just didn't get it. I didn't get there was this network. And um, yeah, certain. So my close friends, that wasn't really an issue at all. But in the lacrosse team, I felt really out of it. And I'm not from a poor background. I'm from a very like no. standard middle class background, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, so my dad's brought me up thinking that we're absolutely minted. And I remember phoning me up being like, we're not just to let you know like you're not as rich as you think you are <laughs> like it's very new money in my family I think and um yeah so that was quite funny and like one of the things that was shocking on the lacrosse team when we had we had the varsity match as it's called against Oxford and we had to write down our addresses for I can't remember like health and status whatever it was so we wrote down our addresses and this girl on the team saw me writing mine down and she was like oh my god oh my God, I've never met someone with a house number before. This is so exciting. And called people over to look at my address because, and I honestly did not get what they were saying until I looked at the rest of the addresses and it was like the stables, the barn. It was all like things that sound like they're not posh, you know, a (laughs) a stable. It's like, well, my house is definitely better than a stable. Um, But yeah, so little things like that. The outhouse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The barn, as if, as if it's a barn. Um, so that was quite funny. And my mum being a nurse, somebody was like, I've, ri- I've written about it, but somebody was like, oh, that's so cute. Oh my God, that's so cute. And people asked things at the lacrosse dinners where we was my like low point of being at Cambridge. And I used to get so drunk because I was so awkward and my friends from college would like come and find me. And I just walk out these dinners halfway through. It was, I was really, I was really kind of rude, I think, because I didn't really know how to um, cope with it. But they would sit, and I remember one dinner, like, no one else went to a state school, and they all went to quite either public or very well-known private schools. And they were asking, like, what's it like going going to school with common people? What's it like being poor? Like, somebody said, what's it like being at Cambridge with such a common accent? It's like, how, how have you, like, got straight A's and you're so, like, not knowledgeable about anything in the world? Just, yeah. So it was it was a flip up. My college friends and lots of them were really lovely, and it obviously taught me a lot in terms of the like academic side. But the the 
it was shocking. Like somebody wouldn't walk with me out of the college. I think that was a low point that I was friends with in college. And then um, she'd almost been asked into like the sort of, what was it, Bollinger equivalent club at Cambridge by someone. And you had to be asked. Yeah, you had to be asked by a boy from Eton. And and she said, oh, do you mind if we don't walk, if you don't walk beside me when we like leave the college? Because I'm almost in. But if I get seen walking like with someone, I guess, from state school, then it would like scupper the chances. So stuff like that just... They're not your friend anymore. No, it's hard not to be biased, though, because there was obviously loads of very wealthy and very posh people who are absolutely brilliant. And I am obviously, you know, wealthy and posh compared to a lot of other people. So it's, it's, yeah, yeah. I try not to sort of shudder every time I hear a sort of um, very posh English accent. (laughs) Because I want to get on to the book. Before I do, just give us a little summary of how you got into sort of spoken word first, then poetry and, you know, a little trajectory of your career since leaving college. So I left college when I was 21 and then I did a master's part time. So I worked for a couple of years in a shop and a nightclub and then did a master's in economics part time. So I thought I wanted to go into economics, which obviously didn't happen. (laughs) Very poetic. Um, But then I just... I was I've been writing a lot of poems for ages, but just kept them, which I still do, and I still really just like writing for myself. But it was, I think, I think I was about twenty three, and um, my mum, who I'd been reading poems to for a long time, and a lot of them were very whingy. That sort of poem when you're like think that you know about the world, so you write about it very confidently. <laughs> so I'm quite glad that I didn't start reading out my poems until I was in like my mid twenties, because I think they might have been terrible. I'm sure that's what I'm going to think about my stuff now when I'm like seventy, but that's fine. Um, so yeah, and then my daughter's dad like sort of encouraged me like, not together anymore but he encouraged me to read them to other people and then so did my mum just in the sense that like I was writing loads about I guess women's women's I don't like the word issues really but stuff to do with being a woman um that they thought might be helpful for other people to read and I guess the fact that I was quite not confident in terms of on stage I've not been into acting or being into theatre or anything but I'm not like a really shy person that would that would find it horrendous, horrendous reading them out. So um, I went, when I was doing the Masters, I went past Covent Garden. There's like a wee poetry cafe in London and it was in London that I was doing this Masters. Um, So I went there a few times and sort of looked through the door and then eventually went in after about a year, I think, and read a poem at this really welcoming poetry open mic night. But I had in my head that I just wanted to prove to myself that I could do it because I kept like calling myself a chicken and writing really terrible poems about being a chicken and what was the point of writing if you couldn't read them out to anyone's like really awful the sort of poems about poetry I don't that's not really (laughs) what I like reading (laughs) a poem about how I couldn't read out my poem like I can't think of anything more boring I write a column and and I've done it for years but sometimes when you're staring the blank page Mm. you know that bit where you're thinking and I've taught it so many times. I'll just write a, a column about how hard it is to write a column. And I have to stop, like, I have to stop myself. It's, you know, who the hell would want to fucking read about you having writer's block? It's like the worst. That's, so I get that completely. Yeah. Maybe we just send it to each other. <laughs> if you ever feel like you desperately need to share it. Yeah, I will, I will. <laughs> Oh yeah. But go on. Oh yeah. So I just went in and I thought, right, I'm just gonna read it, prove that I can do it, and then never not do it again. So it wasn't really in I don't think it was in terms of like wanting anything big to happen out of it. But then at the first reading I did, I got asked to do another open mic night, which was a poetry slam, which I'd not heard of, being somebody that grew up in Bucklebrew and not in a city. Um and so then I did it. And somebody asked me at that to do another one. So I I sort of got asked at them. So it was pretty lucky, really. And then I made a deal that if I got asked to do one, then I'd do it. But if I didn't get asked, I wouldn't, like, just do it for the hell of it. Because I felt really weird about, like, forcing my poems on people. I think poetry's funny because there's the sort of people that call themselves a poet, when I was growing up, wasn't always the people I got on with like somebody that would say like I am a poet it was like oh so the idea of me thinking that 
like people needed to hear this stuff or that I was like good enough to go and you know force my poetry on on people that maybe didn't want to hear it wasn't really something that I wanted to do so then I made a pact that I would do it but then I really sort of got into it and it kind of took off I guess but I was still working I think my daughter was about two years old and I was working in an office job that I, I liked a lot which was in like a um, youth charity architects charity about planning towns with like young people in mind and I'd been there for about six years and then they I got offered like redundancy so that was when I was already doing like enough workshops and gigs and stuff that it was kind of half and half of this job so then went into it but yeah I've still I've still got a bit of that in me it's like why are you doing this and it's really nice sharing poetry and I actually love it when other people share poetry so it's fine but there is still that like don't get to that mentality where you think people like need it I see that quite a lot of gigs where somebody gets given 10 minutes but they you know do half an hour set because it's like the audience needs more sort of thing so I I just that side of poetry I cannot stand and I don't ever want to like <laughs> be part of it so I'm always quite wary I think but I do love it I love sharing it and I love meeting people after and I I love hearing people read their poetry and read another poetry and I'm glad obviously people have shared otherwise you'd not hear anything or read anything so yeah but it is it is a funny a funny wee world I think <laughs> I think that's probably what keeps you. Yeah, I think it's good. Always keep that attitude. I think. I mean, the idea of reading half an hour of poetry when you've only been asked for ten—that's oh, happened just a lot. Shocking to me. Oh, it's amazing. It's happened once. I had like there was about seven of us. I think it was in Australia, but we each had a five-minute slot at this opening, and you know, obviously, if you go over, you're also eating into other people's time. And one of the women were just like, "No, I just, I really, I need to give them more." And just did 20 minutes. Oh. 20 minutes. Cut us all down to like a minute. It's unreal. But yeah. So you're now, I mean, you've, you've a few books. I mean, the books obviously came, you, you you got offers and people wanted to publish you, which must have been fantastic when that happened. I mean, how many, is this, how, how many books have you got now? How, how much is Slug? I've got how much is Slug? <laughs> 14.99 <laughs> from all good bookshops. <laughs> Thank you very much for asking. <laughs> How many books have you got now, Holly McNish? Five, I think. So, yeah, I've got a collection, Papers, Cherry Pie, Plum, and they're all straight poetry collections. And then Nobody Told Me, which is prose and poetry, and then Slug. Um, There's also a play. So I co-wrote a play about the history of UK women's football um, with Sabrina Mafuse, but... In all honesty, I wrote about 5% of it and she wrote about 95% of it, but very kindly put me on as a co-author. So I always feel like I should say it. But yeah, so it's five um, poetry books now. Well, just going on to Slug, because and I know you started that with the, the the last book as well. The prose is brilliant in it because I sometimes read poetry and I find like, OK, I have to sit now and think for a while about what was really going on with that poem. <laughs> and sometimes I get it and sometimes I don't. But you've done these really beautiful sort of prose pieces as kind of, I suppose, like introductions or or behind the scenes of the poem I would yeah. say in a way and then you, and then you put, the, put the poem afterwards and it oh for me it just gives a really glorious um extra layer to what the poem is and tell me about why you like doing that oh, I'm so you know I'm so glad you said that because I keep thinking oh I'm not sure if this is a good idea sometimes basically for the same reasons that I guess you're giving like if I read a poetry book I spend half the time looking up stuff on the internet now, basically about the poet, or I'll watch like a YouTube video of them talking about the poem and then I'll read the poem. I just really like that. And I think not everybody does. Obviously, some people, they just want the poem. But if that's you, then you can just read the poems. Like there's an index of the poems and you can read them if you want. And I've put that at the beginning of the book. But I think... Seamus Heaney is probably my biggest example of why I wanted to do it because I really, I love his poems now and I did them in school and I know that's often the case with people, but I really hated digging the poem when I did it in school and I didn't get given any background to it or maybe I did and I didn't listen, so I'm not blaming the teacher here. Um, I could easily have just been chatting with a friend instead of listening. But I just thought, oh, I don't care. I don't care about digging. Like I don't care about potatoes. I don't care about this. I was really... <laughs> obnoxious little shit I guess you might put it um 
And then after I read about him and watched stuff with him, then I went back to his poems and went to Magrafelt. I might have pronounced that wrong, but um, to do a gig. Very good attempt, Magrafelt. Magrafelt, yeah. Oh. I'm probably getting it wrong now oh. as well, I stayed in a B&B, which is just covered in Seamus Heaney's poems. And I did a gig at Seamus Heaney Centre and read loads. And I just loved it. And I, but I wanted more. Like, I really want to know more about the poem. I think it's really interesting. And I guess doing a lot of live gigs, you get that from a live performance. Like, I watch as much poetry as I read, not at the moment with lockdown. And I love, I love people chatting about the poem before. I really like hearing where they were or what they were thinking or what they were doing or how quickly they wrote it anything I just love I love all those stories so I wanted um I guess I wanted the poems to be a little bit embedded in what I was thinking at the time and maybe why I wrote them so I'm really glad I'm really glad you did because it does make it a bit of a um I really mean I'm just thinking about a midterm break by Seamus Heaney and um and that's a beautiful poem and you know Imagine that with a bit of prose as well about that whole scenario you know um yeah, I think so. I think poetry sometimes exists in a bit of a vacuum and I don't really want that for mine. Well, yours doesn't now and it's fantastic. So let's talk about your grandmothers because <laughs> the, the book is dedicated to them and to your mum. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot about grieving and grief. And I think grandmother or grandparent grief is something again as well. We don't see an awful lot about it. Like you're supposed to be OK. It's supposed to be like, oh, they're old yeah. anyway. And it's OK. But like at one point in the book, you say I'm not a grandchild anymore like I'm nobody's grandchild like I thought that was really I hadn't thought of it because I I felt a bit jealous of you having those relationships because I'm someone who I, on both sides just never had that re- oh, that experience yeah. two of my grandparents were in, in London because my mum's from England and then the other two the mother the grandmother was dead long before and then the grandfather just was a bit of a distant character okay, so yeah. you know the fact that you had these two really important relationships and that when they were gone there was so much in you to express about that. It was really beautiful to read. Um, tell me about them. Wow, they were just amazing. I, th- I just, I feel like, I, d- I definitely feel like they would have both hated this book. Like my, gra- my grannies would have really, really not liked the fact that I wrote about this stuff, but they would also have sort of liked it and hated it at the same time. So I find it a bit funny dedicating it to them because they would have, I can imagine them rolling their eyes being like, oh, Holly, like, do you have to? Like, my mum is, do you have to? But my grands would be like, do you have to? You're going to get, you know, ejected from the village if you if you write these poems. Um, but they would, they were both really different, actually. I think that's why I learned. So my granddad's died longer ago. So I spent more time with my grannies than anybody else. But they were just so open to chat, which is amazing. And I know lots of people don't have that. And my gran, especially my mum's mum that I talked to, well, I say a lot in the book that I talked to a lot about sex, but but about sort of pleasure and all of those taboo stuff and how it affected her life so much. Um, and seeing it, I had a, such a nice time in life. And I think I'm going to remember it like so happily. But when my, I've got a daughter who's 11 and, and, um, me and my mum and my granny and my daughter went on quite a few holidays together. And I don't think a lot of people get that, like four generations of women going on holiday. It was amazing and just sitting and, you know, having a brandy and milk or whatever, or a gin tonic, am I still having a tonic, which might encourage alcoholism, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say that, but um, <laughs> just the tonic. But the amount of comparisons that we could do in terms of what we've been told to hate and especially stuff stuff in the book. You know, if I thought, oh, it's really bad with periods now and hiding the tampon up my sleeve, I talk about, and then my gran talking about what she had to do and, and birth and, you know, and, and sort of all having the same dreams. Like, I don't know about my daughter, she's, she's young yet, but all the sort of desires in us to do with all the sexual stuff was quite similar, especially me and my mum's mum. You know, we sort of fancy the same the same people and find the same things quite, <laughs> quite a turn on, I think. But she just couldn't really do much with that or she was, you know, shamed for it a lot more than I would be. Um, so, yeah, it was, gr- it was great just... Yeah, I've got like it's not at all the same, but I've got a very elderly neighbour who I have a cup of tea with each day normally, um, or a chat over the fence, and um, 
it's it's just sort of speaking to somebody. Just, I don't think it has to be a grandparent. It's just speaking to somebody that's a different generation or two different generations to you. I think I just think it's really important. I think I learned more than from then than I did from probably from Cambridge. <laughs> I'd say. Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, that intergenerational thing. I just think it's something we don't value as much as we should. And whether it is an actual relative or whether it's just someone in your life that, you know, like I've a few friends who have good friends who are much, much older than them. And I'm just always I love those friendships. I think they're fascinating and important yeah. and rich and full of full of stuff. Um, I want you to read a couple of poems for us because um, I can't have you on without doing that. And <laughs> oh, the first one is about, uh, tell me about this because um, you do have a lovely bit of prose before <laughs> this particular poem. And it's from, I'm not, I'm not sure which, is it the one, the granny you talk about sex with or the other the granny? The other granny. Just it's, it's... <laughs> random chat granny. <laughs> yes, my. Um, it's, it's... Tell us about this and then read us the poem. Okay, so, th- so this poem is dedicated to my dad's mum. And my dad's side of the family is really obsessed with, it's not theft. I said that to my mum. She was like, do not call it theft. That makes us look terrible. But I think everyone has this in their family. So that just obsession with free testers in shops and also just taking as much free stuff as you can possibly get your hands on. So my gran definitely taught me taught me this. And she used to just come. I remember when they came down from Scotland, her and my granddad and my auntie sometimes, they just used to have so many like sugar sachets from the train and that that kind of thing. <laughs> take, I had a lot of friends visited Scotland when I was younger and she used to take us just into the shops that had like the free tablet and <laughs> the free tea. We'd go to church fates just for the free scones. Um, so, yeah, it's about and that. And you know when you go into Marks and Spencer sometimes and they have someone making little sausages. <laughs> oh, I'm go, I go around a few times, like I have to, oh. and then you try to pretend haven't just been and, and then they look at you but it's a- so true and I love that about being an adult I love it it's one of the best things going with my daughter and it's annoying that the posh of the shop the more free stuff you get basically and all the art galleries and stuff but yeah like Whittard's going in there and then we disguise ourselves going again get as many like hot chocolate samples as possible <laughs> but yeah so sorry so this poem's called the day I stopped nicking tea bags from hotels and it was when I was on tour and I was sort of, I guess, bragging, though I don't like the word, but I guess it sort of was to another um, woman who was the support poet for this gig I was doing in York. And I said, oh, I've not bought any tea or sugar for like two months now because I've just been nicking them from hotels. And I thought this was like a massive, amazing thing to brag hey. about, you know, how to make a friend. Um, but she was <laughs> a very good environmentalist and she just looked at me totally straight faced and said, um, actually, that's really bad for the environment because the more people steal those little things, the more they're made and they're all like in plastic and it's really bad. And that was the response. I was like, oh, okay, great. So I've tried, I've tried not to steal stuff. So this is my trauma of doing that. <laughs> the day I stopped nicking tea bags from hotels or granny, please forgive me. This is your fault, Granny, that I'm like this. I cannot leave the tiny shampoo bottle in the hotel shower, which I do not need to take. I do not need to take it. It will just sit in my bathroom cupboard unused for years, but I cannot leave it. Or the shower gel, or the body lotion. I don't even use body lotion. I've never used body lotion. This is your fault, Grandma. I cannot leave the tea bags in the basket for the next guest. I cannot leave the biscuits in the packets in the basket for the next guest. I cannot leave the alcohol in the glasses or the barrels or the bottles or all you can drink parties that you pay set fees in advance for. This is your fault, Grandma. That night, I ended up in a car park in a tutu, thinking the car park was my bedroom because I had to get my money's worth. You have to get your money's worth, Holly. All you can drink pay in advance parties, which was only five pounds to get into anyway. Don't worry, Grandma. I wasn't hurt. My friend found me. He explained that the car park was not my flat, the car park space, not my bedroom, but Granny. Remember, you used to order 20 packs of sugars with your tea on the train down from Glasgow just so you could steal the packs of sugars with the excuse that they would have thrown them away anyway after being on your saucer. You never even ordered tea. Just a mug of hot water and 20 packs of sugar slipped a tea bag from your handbag so you did not have to pay the full price for a cup of tea on the train. Today, I left a hotel room for the first time in my life without taking a single tea bag, not one. You do not need the tea bag, Holly. You do not need the tea bag, Holly. The war is over. 
But now I'm on the train back home, staring out the window, and I can feel you on my shoulder, looking down on me, disgusted, frowning at the loss. What has happened to your family? What has happened to your grandchild? Whispering traitor, whispering traitor, whispering traitor. Oh, Holly, <laughs> that is brilliant. Oh, like, seriously, you are amazing. And, you know, how you can bring us in to that whole thing. I, I mean, I totally relate. I rob a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure everyone listening knows and has a, has a granny or a relative like that or is that person themselves. That was just extraordinary. And um, at the back of your book, you um, you thank the PN Review, which wrote a really horrible review of your poetry a few years ago. <laughs> Why do you thank them? Do you know, that is really interesting that you've said that because I've actually taken it out in the proper version so you've got a proof and I thank them because um I sort of wanted other people if they'd had stuff like that and I don't mean done to them like part of that review I'm totally fine with genuinely criticism I think is very important and it's really nice as someone that's come through spoken word where everyone's just like oh I like that poem I like that poem you don't really get any critiquing of your work um so I really like that but because part of that review it was just really horrible (laughs) and I don't think it was okay and I don't really think it should have been printed so there was a lot in that that was just um it was sort of saying if any audience member likes Holly's poetry you're obviously ignorant um and and often these reviews, they, they like to call on writers of the past and tell me how much writers of the past would have hated my poems. So I was sort of told that Schopenhauer and Hegel would have kind of argued about how awful I was. Um, so I think a lot of the time we do that without, you know, you don't know that. I might have got on with Hegel very well, thank you very much. And I've had a similar one <laughs> done recently about, um, about Keats for Keats' anniversary. Um, there was about how Keats would have turned in his grave at the state of modern poetry that we should just call rubbish. And I was used as one of the examples of that. And I think, again, you can't you can't speak for Keats. Like, he would probably have been in the same poetry scene. I think a lot of poets actually get on really well with poets writing different sort of poetry to them. I don't think it's as divided as people make out. I think it's just, in, in journalism, they often divide it, but the actual poets are getting on quite well, respecting each other quite a lot. Um so yeah, I just wanted it to be like, it's all right if you get a terrible review. But then actually I thought, mm, this is an acknowledgement of this book that I've worked really hard on. I actually don't want to put that in there and just keep back to it. But I do use there, I do use some of the bad reviews for my tour posters because some of the really bad ones are really amazing. Like <laughs> just ha- like how much people, it's not even hating the poetry, it's like, just hating me for writing it or hating like Picador for publishing it or whatever it is. So yeah, I think, I think I wanted it in and then I changed my mind. So yeah, it's interesting that you picked that up. No, it is. I'm glad, I'm glad I asked you even though, and it's, it's good because I think you're making very good points there. Um, Now you, along with the likes of Rupi Kaur and Kate Tempest, you've been kind of credited with, we talked about it earlier, making poetry a bit more accessible. Um, What do you think, it is about your work that speaks to young women particularly. And do you think it's important that poetry, um, because there's some snobbery around, and I suppose you've alluded to that in the review. I mean, there's, there's space for everything is what yeah. I think. There's space for all kinds of books. There's space for all kinds of totally. art. There's space for all kinds of music. Uh, what is this idea that it has to be only one type of, of thing? But where do you think you fit into all of that? And, and do you like being part of this kind of new poetry movement? I'm not really sure what I think about it. To be honest, most of the time in the day, I'm I'm too busy trying to like do my job and make dinner and look after my friends' kids and like arrange childcare or do the school run. So I do, don't get me wrong, I do think about it a bit, but sometimes sometimes the argument makes me sort of annoyed that I'm even spending any of my life thinking about what I think of poetry because honestly I really think there's a lot of very important things to be done in the world and that that's something but not as big as maybe I, I want it to be in my head. Um, I find it strange that it's always Rupi Kaur, not always, but a lot Rupi Kaur, myself and Kay Tempest often are lumped together and I think our poetry is really different and I find it really weird. So every time that those three names are put together, it always makes me think that actually this journalist hasn't hasn't really read a lot of it really because we all started out in different ways like I think Rupi Kaur started yeah. out on Instagram 
I started out, well, I guess we all started out writing, but Kay Tempest was very much kind of on stage and her, she's so inspired by a lot of the past writers that these articles say that she's never read and things. I just think that there's quite a lot of weak arguments involved in it. No, I completely agree. And I, I I mean, I think if anyone's listening who hasn't seen or read any of Kate Tempest or Rupi or yourself, and loads more, by the way, other people as well, they're so different. Yeah. That's the thing I'd say. But they're all, I think what you do, I do believe there might be a common thread in like, the ideas we have, we're told about poetry in school, which was a lot of, I think, nonsense a lot of the time. You yeah. three and many others at the moment are challenging that and are showing us the different ways words can be put together that can be equally moving, uplifting, challenging, thought-provoking, all of those things. Yeah. So and I don't, perhaps that's the movement. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I don't like, I definitely don't, like this is not in a in a bad way, but I don't think K Tempest poetry is that accessible in that way. I think it's very complicated, and <laughs> um, much more. Some of it, is. some of it, some is. of it's less so. And, yeah, and it is accessible, but I mean, I mean, in the sort of I get called accessible sometimes in an insulting way by a lot of these reviews. I think it's a compliment. Yeah, myself, I think sorry. it's a. I find it weird that you'd you know, oh, this venue is far too accessible for my liking. I find it like I try and compare it to stuff like that, you know. <laughs> But like, actually, it's fine. I hadn't thought of it like that. <laughs> and I know that's not saying. And I don't think all poetry should be accessible, just like I don't think all, like you said, I don't think all painting should be. I think there's space for everything. And I find it strange that people get quite so annoyed um, about it. And I do think, I like it though. I get, I sort of was lumped into an article the other day about Insta poets. So I find it funny. Like every time I seem to share something on social media, People that are being positive sort of lump me in that, like, oh, YouTube poets are coming up. It's like, pff, I mean, I'm reading from a book, but you're not calling me a book poet. I'm called a YouTuber. Yeah. And then... It's like if Martin Amos appears on YouTube, is he suddenly a YouTuber? Totally. You know? Well, like well it's... I know Simon Armitage is on Instagram and he's really good on Instagram. So I really want an article to, you know, Insta poets that you've got to follow. <laughs> Simon Armitage is on Instagram. <laughs> like, follow him. <laughs> so... I think you should do that. Yeah. Now, listen, I'm going to, we haven't really spoken much. We started at the beginning about talking about women's bodies and pinky gloves, which I know you're going to go off and research now after, <laughs> after this interview. So pinky gloves, pinky <laughs> gloves. Let's go back to that because a lot of your work is so brilliant on women's experiences, let's call it, rather than women's issues or just living the life of a woman, uh, parenthood, you know, sexuality. Um, I mean, the masturbation stuff that you have in there, I would, I really, we could talk all day about that because I think there's one part where you're talking about uh, this idea of losing your virginity as if sex is only penetration yeah. from a penis, you know, as if there isn't so many other glorious ways to explore sex and some of them on your own. Yeah, you know, totally. Just, the best yeah. way, like you say, can't hurt anyone. And um, there's no consent yes, issues. It's just so you. So safe and so cheap. <laughs> yeah, so safe and cheap. So um, with that being said, would you read the poem, which has got a brilliant title, When I Am Dead, Will You Finally Shut the Fuck <laughs> Up? Because I think it encompasses a lot of your worldview, let's say, and 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 why your um, work, I think, is so important. And I'll certainly, when my, I have two 11-year-old daughters, and when they get a little bit older, I'll, I'll need to leave it a few years. But yeah. like your book is something I'd want them to read, because I think it'll be an education and a liberation for them. And it will hopefully by then confirm stuff that they already know, but just allow them to be in a world where we don't have to feel queasy and squeamish yeah. about all this stuff. Oh, thanks a lot. My daughter's 11 too, and I'm also not letting her read it yet. Yeah. Or maybe ever, because it's her mum, so it's a bit weird and different. <laughs> when I am dead, will you finally shut the fuck up? When I was a teenage girl, the newspapers printed stories about monsters they called paedophiles. When I was a teenage girl, a special assembly was called, which told us all to watch out for a man flashing his penis in the park near the school. We all thought it was funny, walked there especially, looked out for the long coat, pointed with our friends. When I was a teenage girl, one newspaper printed a list of home addresses of people they called paedophiles, vigilante justice and one count of linguistic ignorance graffitiing the walls of a paediatrician's home. When I was a teenage girl, I bought a top ten record by another teenage girl dancing in school uniform like mine. She sang, hit me baby, one more time. I sang, hit me baby, one more time, not wondering whether the clever chorus line referred to punching or being fucked hard or replaying a record. When I was a teenage girl, my friend was called a slag for owning a vibrator. When I was a teenage girl, my friend was called a prude for not getting fingered. 
When I was a teenage girl, the front cover of this album had Britney Spears in pigtails, looking up at a camera as virgin as could be. I did not wonder who directed it. When I was a teenage girl, my friend told everyone he had fingered me in the garden at a house party that weekend when really he was crying about a problem in his family. He apologised at school. I agreed not to tell the truth. We stayed close friends. When I was a teenage girl, I opened the CD in my bedroom, a poster folded up inside to put up on my wall. It had Brittany, dressed in a virgin white vest top, with virgin white teeth, sat astride a chair, legs parted for the camera, camera zoomed onto her schoolgirl crotch. When I was a teenage girl, I was told not to use a tampon when I was bleeding playing sport because that would be like losing my virginity to a tampon before I'd had a dick in me. I was told not to put a dick in me. I was told the only sex that counted was sex with a dick in me. When I was a teenage girl, two teenage girls in a Russian pop video were directed to snog each other in school uniform like mine, looking sexy at the camera, singing all the things she said, all the things she said, running through my head, running through my head. When I was a teenage girl, I was told off for wearing a skirt too short for school. I rolled it down each lesson, rolled it up each break. When I was a teenage girl, I was told I could not play in the tennis team unless I wore the match kit. Match kit was a short white skirt. I was on my period. I did not use a tampon yet because that would be like ruining my pussy before I'd had a dick in me. Sanitary towels leaked a lot. I learnt how to check for bloodstains between backhand lobs. When I was a teenage girl, I was told not to risk the shortcut. I was told not to walk alone. I was told not to stay out late. I was told not to masturbate. I was told not to get pregnant. I was told not to get fingered. I was told not to be too sexy. I was told not to not be sexy. I was told to sing, hit me, baby, hit me, baby, hit me, baby, one more time in a uniform like hers. I was told all the things she said, all the things she said, running through my head, running through my head. When I was in my 20s, I fed my baby in the toilet for fear of looking like I was sort of trying to look sexy. I'm still not sure exactly why I was embarrassed to feed a baby with my body, but I was. When I was 30, my friend organised a Botox party before we went on holiday because apparently when you are 30, laughter is less attractive. When I was 35, I was told not to wear a vest top because women my age do not show our arms now for fear of bats apparently landing on the skin below. When I was 40, I was told my sex drive would dry up with my bleeding, but no one talks about the menopause. When I was 50, I was told. When I was 60, when I was 70, when I was 80, I was told I am hoping this will stop. But my grandma is 92 and she is on a diet because in our family, as I've been told my entire life long, the women in our family have bad stomachs. Hold it in, Holly. Hold it in, Holly. Hold it in, Holly. When I'm dead... I am hoping I can stretch out in my coffin, silence in my bones. It's just great hearing you read it. I just, you're a very talented person and I'm so glad that you're writing poetry and also prose because that's also fantastic. And, and like we didn't really go into the sort of what inspired that poem at the beginning. And I'm, in a way it's great because people can get the book and they can read that part too. But there's there's a really interesting um, lead into the poem. But just fantastic. I know that everyone listening is just going to be cheering wherever they are on their walks or their um, in their kitchens. So thank you so oh, much. Thanks a lot. I was thinking if my mum's listening, she'll be like, why do you have to say the word pussy? <laughs> that is, she will not be cheering. <laughs> between there and scotland yeah there in glasgow and where are you now holly before we say goodbye i'm based just north of cambridge so between there and glasgow as well brilliant yeah. well the best of luck with it um we hope you'll come back on the podcast sometime again yeah, um because you've got the next book coming out is it next year or i think so yeah <laughs> the next sort of the next half that it's more it's more uplifting and less money i'd say the next one yeah <laughs> Well, I don't care. I'd read anything you write. You're just fantastic. Oh, and thanks so much for giving us so much time and the best of luck with everything. I haven't even asked you about the pandemic. That's the obligatory question. You can give us a quick response to how it's kind of, I mean, performing is a big part of your work. So it must have, you know, like for any artist, it's it's been very disruptive. Yeah, it has been, but I have been all right, not feeling vomit nervous for a year because I always do before I go on. So that has been all right. <laughs> but the pandemic in general has been a bit rubbish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. COVID silver line. Yeah. There. Holly McNish, thanks so much for joining oh, that's us. That's all right. Thanks for having me. 
And that was Holly McNish. I really recommend that book. It's brilliant. Not like any poetry book you've ever read, but that's it for today. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us with suggestions of issues we should be covering. And that address for email is thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Mind yourselves, haircuts and hugs this week. I hope you enjoy yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.